Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Big question. So many people are pondering right now, how early is too early to put out fall decorations? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I resisted the urge to decorate my apartment for fall this past weekend. It was still 80 degrees outside. And I thought, you know what? I don't know. I don't know that I need to put out pumpkins right now. We'll see. That might happen this weekend. Uh, usually, as soon as Trader Joe's starts getting in their gourds and they have like all these cinnamon like wreaths out, I I can't resist and I cave to it. But uh, you know, that's a long time. That like if I put it out in mid September and it has to last through Thanksgiving, those gourds are not going to stay fresh. So oh yeah, no, you'll have to. <laughs> I, I feel like. What it is is as soon as the pools close, right? Okay. I want summer to last as long as possible, really stretch it out, enjoy time in the sun. But there's no reason if the pools are closed and you're not expected to, like, go do water activities, why we can't just go right into fall. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. I think that's a great point. <laughs> but my bigger thing is let's do fall for a long time, but let's not stretch out Christmas. Really? Oh, yeah. Christmas. Okay. I like Christmas from like December 20th to like December 26th. Oh, gosh. Lauren. That's like one baby baby Christmas. Yes. One good week. No, 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 no. I'm full month. Wow. No. I like day after Thanksgiving, I am putting out Christmas decorations and like they're probably staying up till mid January. There's summer season, then there's football season, and then in December, you have like a little Christmas. Enjoy it. And then, and then we have like the three months of sadness. Which is January through March. I mean, those are, well, so I will say if you don't have snow, those are sad months. Those are great months if you live in the north, depending on how much you like snow. I love snow. So they're great months for snow, and it's usually just gorgeous out because everything's covered in snow. It's beautiful. That was my childhood. Uh, I I want Christmas to be a longer season, but Lauren, you enjoy your six days. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Well, what do we have queued up on today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we remember 9-11 and talk with nurse Suzanne Bucci about her experience at the Pentagon on September 11th, 2001. We also discuss the passage of a new pro-life legislation in Texas and explain some of the ways the left is pushing back on the new law. Plus, it's time to go back to school. Virginia and I share some of the best advice we received in college. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. This Saturday is the 20th anniversary of September 11th. I was young, like I imagine most of our listeners are. I was only 10 years old in the fifth grade. uh, And I remember that day, it was a normal day at school. They didn't tell us. Uh, We... Got home, went on the bus. And Whoa. So you went all the way through the whole school day and you didn't oh, know. Yeah. I, uh, oh, my, yeah. Wow. My mom never drove to pick us up because it was like a half mile walk yeah. for me to go from the front of our neighborhood to where her house was. So that was like our exercise, right? So, But my mom was there to, to drive us and it was me and my, my younger sister who probably was only in the first grade at the time. And she's like, 
kids, there's there's bad people out of the world, out in the world, and and they did bad things. And for me, I, I was at a point in my life where, you know, ten, oh, I was almost eleven. I really think I understood mm. more than the adults around me thought, mm-hmm. and it really, uh, it was so scary to be a kid and to be, you know, just to think that this could happen at any time. And and I think a lot of millennials still hold that fear deep inside of them that literally the world could come crashing down. Mm-hmm. Virginia, you're you're slightly younger than me, but probably the same same ish age. Yeah, yeah. I was eight and in third grade. Um and uh yeah, no, I I mean I was in probably one of the most like idealistic serene places that you could possibly be to learn that the entire world has just changed for forever. But I was homeschooling that year and I was actually on a picnic with my mom and another homeschooling family uh, up in, we were living in a little town called Wolfboro, New Hampshire at the time. We were sitting on a town green beside a lake. I mean, just picture perfect mountains in the background, lake, absolutely beautiful. And another couple that we knew walking by that morning with cups of coffee and they said, did you hear the news? Um, planes just hit the World Trade Centers. And at that point, I think it was still a little bit unclear what was totally going on. And, uh, you know, my mom didn't, it didn't fully register. It was sort of like, oh, maybe that was an accident. Uh, And then we got home and turned on the TV. And I don't think the TV went off for two weeks. I mean, it was just, wow. Um, Did did your parents let you watch the coverage of it on the news? Oh, yeah. 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 And I remember calling my friends. You know, you had the landline and just mm-hmm. I just remember sitting on the steps of my house and just calling like everybody one by one. And we would three way call. And I mean, we really thought that like our dads in Jacksonville were going to yeah. be the next target, you know, and uh, looking back, it's completely preposterous like yeah no. but like it's a kid and you're <laughs> you know, great yeah yeah like, yeah. Yeah. Um, like i had that thought of like oh my gosh once i found out we were at war i was like is my dad gonna get drafted like yeah. what does this look like what does this mean yeah. like is there gonna be fighting in the streets outside my house I, like yeah for a kid you just don't understand what that means yeah no it was uh yeah it was definitely and then what sticks out to me even more though is that the next day on the school bus, we were singing God Bless America. Mm. Um, and the, the way that the country came together and um, really our community came together, we were in church the next morning um, praying. And um, I think we weren't alone in that. I, I th- pretty much everyone was at a church that next day. And, um, yeah, it really hit hard and it, it, it created this uncertainty that, that I think defines the millennial generation. But where we went after that and the way that people turn to prayer and people turn to community, I think that also is a big part of millennials and, and their kind of our upbringing is that we, you know, we did use our home phones to call each other. Mm-hmm. We were able to kind of quickly create these bonds, even though I don't have this kind of crazy 9-11 stories like we're going to hear in, in a moment. It really was so pivotal to our, our lives and our upbringing and, and our country and, and where we are today. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm convinced there are definitely ways that I don't even fully understand how much 9-11 changed our, our world. And I know it changed it forever significantly. Uh, we'll, we'll never be the same. Um, but man, at, at every level, so, so many deep impacts um, just really, really wild to now be looking back 20 years later. 
Well, many of you, like Lauren and I, were probably still in school on September 11th, 2001. Some of you maybe weren't even born yet. So we wanted to hear from someone who lived through this as an adult who uh, really experienced 9-11 firsthand. And so we are so incredibly honored to be joined by Suzanne Bucci, who was at the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. Suzanne, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, almost 20 years ago now, we, we remember the events of that day like they were yesterday when terrorists hijacked four different commercial flights. Of course, two of those planes hit the World Trade Center's one plane was crashed in a field in Pennsylvania after passengers tried to take uh, take control of that plane. And then American Airlines Flight 77, that's the flight that crashed into the west side of the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. And Suzanne, you were actually at the Pentagon that day for a job interview, correct? I was indeed. I was uh, interviewing for a Red Cross a nurse uh, job, the Red Cross allows nurses and medical professionals, nurse practitioners like myself, to uh, work for uh, free. <laughs> and, um, and I've done that for years and years and years. And I was interviewing for a job in the Pentagon Air Force Flight Medicine Clinic. And it is also a, they don't technically have VIP clinics, but it's an executive medicine clinic um, serving the Secretary of Defense and uh, other heads of, um, of services and the CID agents and everybody else that we kind of collected as we went along over the few years. So it, it's a, it was a special clinic. It, it was just starting to kind of um, increase in numbers at the time when I got there. But um, you, I, as a Red Cross nurse, I can always work in any uh, federal um, place, military place is usually where I've been working. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll go to the Pentagon because my husband's working at the Pentagon. So I went in at um, about 4.30 in the morning with him and sat in his office while he read his um, intel briefs and got ready for Secretary Rumsfeld, and then he took me down to the clinic. Wow. So were were you sitting in your interview when the plane hit? Had you not had the interview well, yet? T- take us into that day. What what did your well, morning look like? Yeah, I, my it was supposed to have been the week prior. I was supposed to meet with the nurse and the physician. And that got canceled and was, of course, put on 9-11. I got there. The nurse still wasn't there. And he, he was over at uh, uh, across the way at uh, Andrews Air Force Base. And the doctor was there, but he was uh, with a patient. So I just sat in the lobby waiting to be interviewed. And I was dressed in my high heels, you know, and your pearls and a dress mm-hmm. looking like I was going to an, a medicine clinic, executive medicine. And the uh, clinic swayed the basically the building swayed and I asked the secretary at the desk if that was normal and she said well this is the freight elevator that's doing that the elevator doors open and I I couldn't believe that the whole entire building would move every time the elevator doors (laughs) open so I chose not to believe that but I politely said oh okay so the television was on in the lobby and there was uh, two pilots sitting there and on the TV came the uh, first plane uh, in New York city. And we thought, well, wow, did this guy have a heart attack, the pilot, or, you know, was he drunk or, you know, we, we had no idea. We were 
kind of throwing things around. It never occurred to us to think terrorist first. And then the second plane um, hit the building, and then we thought, well, were we watching a you know, Mel Gibson movie, or what What was it? We were very confused. It was sort of funny to think back about that, that we didn't think terrorism. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the building moved. Now, there's no uh, alarm system in the Pentagon where we were, and so we did not know that we had been hit by a plane. So we just sat there, and, and somebody finally came in and said, hey, you need to get out of the building. That building's been attacked. So I've never been in the Pentagon before, and uh, I did the normal thing. I looked around and went in the rooms to make sure there were no patients. I didn't realize there was another room across the hallway in this clinic, and somebody was getting uh, a colonoscopy, strangely enough, or a sigmoid for a patient. And uh, we left that patient with our tech and the doctor, and we all got out of the building. I, I had all my professional papers with me I was carrying, and... Uh, we went down the stairways. It was pitch black because there was no emergency lights in the Pentagon uh, where we were. So we felt our way down four floors and went out into the center of the Pentagon into what they call ground zero. And we could see the smoke at that point. But we still didn't know what had happened. We had mm. no idea what, what was going on. And then we uh, realized we need to go back into the building and start getting patients. So we went in to look for people doing exactly what your mother told you not to do, go back into the burning building, but we all ran back in. Wow. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and uh, I'm an OBGYN uh, nurse practitioner, so I'm trained for female medicine, not emergency or, you know, starting IVs. I hadn't done that in years. But, you know, it comes back to you. So we started uh, working with different people that we found that were trying to crawl out. Um, one of our our uh, senior enlisted Air Force um, people went back into the actual fire and helped lift a, a rather large beam off of a patient with a general. And um, and then we, we worked with other other people that were crawling out of the, the hole. Cause our clinic was not was in line with the plane that hit the building, but it, it stopped short of our hallway. So we didn't get any of the... Uh, or the fire or anything like that, but the people below us did and, and in the other rings of the Pentagon. And then we, um, they told us to evacuate because there's another attack coming, they thought. So we all ran out. Which again, I still had no idea where I was. And then I found myself out in the middle of the, the street along the water there, along the channel, and uh, hailing down a car to put a patient in that had inhaled jet uh, fuel. And then they told us to go back into the building. So we all went back into the building um, and we're looking for more people. And that's how the morning started. Wow. 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 So, so you were interviewing for a job. Had you ever worked at the Pentagon before? How did the how or, or what was the decision that was made where you could just start helping patients uh, immediately? Well, uh, you know, when you have a situation like that, they don't really look at your credentials. <laughs> And so, um, you know, I was there with a visitor's badge on, but nobody really knew who I was. And um, when you're in an emergency situation, pretty much good Samaritan laws will uh, help you out there. And uh, so we just all started working on patients because you had to. There were were people coming from um, where the plane had gone into the hole and they were crawling out. Most of them, people I worked with were defense intelligence people. And I met a few of them afterwards. Uh, one of them was burned. We 
he was uh, in the hospital. He remembered all of us who had worked on him. He, he knew our names, what each person had done. He was It was really quite uncanny. He's um, got a ministry to people that have been burned um, in this country. So he's an interesting guy. Wow. There were just lots of uh, opportunities to uh, help with people. And everybody in the military really is trained to do some first aid of some kind. I thought at first there were a lot of medics because I didn't understand why everybody was uh, standing in the middle of the Pentagon ground zero where the fire was. And then I realized they were all active duty people and nobody leaves your, your buddy behind. Nobody leaves your um, partner behind. So everybody stayed uh, to help out. Most of the patients came out through the, um, the ground zero. They did not come out to the front of the building. Mm. So there was huge tents set up and clinic kind of uh, capabilities out there, but that was from the DiLorenzo Clinic, the downstairs clinic. And they were out receiving patients the other direction, but nobody came out that way. We had all the patients on the inside. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so powerful to be there right in in the middle of it uh, and on on that day, I mean, I, I don't think that was yeah. obviously a, a coincidence. You were you were there for a reason, and uh, I, with that, yeah, with not that a training, yeah, <laughs> yeah not a coincidence. So, my children were at home. Well, actually, I tried to call my children, and they uh, friends here in Michigan called the school. I mean, they had just been in school for a, a two weeks. We we didn't even know the school number. She was able to get into the school a phone system and get them sent home. But they were home and with telephone calls coming in. And uh, my eldest son just kept saying, well, God has my mom in the Pentagon. So he did not know where his father was, but he, he just kept saying God had her in the Pentagon. And I do believe that's exactly where the Lord wanted me that day. There was a woman that worked alongside of all the patients that we took care of, and she prayed over every single patient. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a great comfort, I think, to to so many of them. None of the patients I worked with died, which was um, pretty miraculous to me. And then I went outside eventually and sat on the outside of the uh, Pentagon walls. They um, told me I couldn't go out there. And I had a team of medics with me. And I said, well, I have to get out there. There's, you know, medical people. And I didn't know what was going on the outside. I only know what was going on in the inside of the building. And they said, well, you have to be a doctor. Well, they'd given me a blue vest. Somehow I got a blue vest. I don't know where it came from. And it had a white piece of paper in the name tag slot. So I wrote physician on it and <laughs> put it back on. And then they told me I could go around the building. So <laughs> I, I, I know that sounds terrible, but um, I needed to get to the other side of the building. So yeah. I took the whole medical team with me. And we went around to the other side and worked with the people that were the firemen and the Fairfax rescue people, and they came to work with the fire the fire department people, and we worked with them taking their blood pressures and making sure they had liquids and fluids at that point. So I was doing what a normal Red Cross nurse would do in a disaster situation. The other odd thing was there, there were no bathrooms, so we were spending the whole day outside, and there's, there's no way to go to the bathroom. So this other um, airman, she and I went to try to find some place to go to the bathroom and we wound up crossing like six or eight I don't know how many lanes of roads you know there is there by the Pentagon but into Arlington Cemetery underneath a bridge to go to the bathroom we had odd I was wearing pantyhose I mean that we still wore those at that time it was just a really odd day in the middle of Washington DC and there were little things that were 
kind of things you'd laugh about when you look back. And but for the most part, it was a a, a really exhausting day. I sat on a stretcher at one point. Somebody came up one note. I needed help. I said, no, I just needed to stop for a minute and take mm-hmm. a rest. Yeah. So we uh, we worked all day, and then uh, I didn't see my husband until later that afternoon when he came out with Secretary Rumsfeld, and uh, I ran over to give him a big hug and kiss, and he ran to me, and Aww. the secretary wanted to know who was that woman he was kissing. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> that's just how he said it too who's that woman you were kissing <laughs> and uh because <laughs> so, my husband at that point all all day he didn't know whether i was dead or alive oh. so we um we we finally got got together at that point um i didn't go home until much later that night and i came home and to kingstown uh in springfield which is about nine mile drive and all over the cars in our neighborhood and all over my house were black ashes. And mm-hmm. that is something that's never left me because I know that those are the ashes from the from people that died uh, in that plane and in the Pentagon. Yeah. And that makes it very difficult for me for this particular type of um, remembrance because those people, you know, we'll never forget them. And I'll never forget coming home and seeing their ashes really everywhere. And um, it makes it hard for me to uh, to talk about this particular uh, topic. Yeah, yeah. No, I imagine those things are are burned in your memory for forever. You, mm-hmm. you can't forget that. I mean, there was 184 no. people lost their lives that day. And... Exactly. And and I didn't know any of them, but there was a man called the Candy Man, mm-hmm. uh, who everyone asked me about. Uh, the Air Force has a um, system called SISM teams, and um, those teams are made up of a nurse or and a psychologist and a spiritual person. And you go in teams and then knock on. We we went around and knocked on uh, doors in the Pentagon everywhere. We were allowed in any place that that we could get it, get into. Which now we can't get into a lot of those places. You have to have special permission. We were able to go all the places that are normally closed. We went to general's offices, we went to civilian offices, we went everywhere, knocked on the doors of the team, this team and asked how they were doing. But one of the most common questions I got, probably the most common question, was what happened to the candy man? Mm-hmm. And he was a man in the Pentagon, apparently walked around, I don't know exactly what his job was, but he carried a can of candy with him and went around and did his job and everyone just dearly loved this man. He just brought such joy and he had been killed in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was able to uh, see who his family was at one point in the memorial and um, uh, just get a feel for who he was because he was so important. Somebody like that, that that everybody loved in the Pentagon who had passed away. Yeah. There were, So it went on for quite some time, you know, the grieving process um, for months and months. And then over the years that I was in the Pentagon working, I had established relationships then with people that I had met in the weeks following the disaster. Wow. A lot of our listeners, Suzanne, aren't even 20 years old. So what is your message yeah. as we're looking back on this disaster, this this national tragedy? What is your message to those who either barely remember or don't remember September 11th at all? You know, I'm going to be teaching third and fourth graders this week. Uh, and that's the same question I was asked to talk to them about. And I remember back when I was 
you know, third and fourth grade, and people tell me about Barber. And it's this kind of event, and I think we uh, have that in our minds, like Pearl Harbor is something I felt like it was very real, although I wasn't born uh, for another uh, 11 years after Pearl Harbor. But it was extremely real, and I think those of us that are have gone through 9-11 need to continue to make sure that the story is told as to the attack on our, our country and how important it is to support the military, support your um, government agencies that work in uh, intelligence or defense or the State Department to, uh, to, to keep the enemy at bay because we really don't want to keep don't want this homeland to be attacked again. We don't, we don't want to have that happen. And it's important that they understand that we can have that happen to us. As other people live around the world, they live under attack constantly. We think of Afghanistan right now and the young, young people over there that will be in harm's way and um, something that doesn't happen to us every day. But if we keep those stories alive, it's important. It's also important to keep those stories alive about the people that lost their lives or those that were heroic in saving people's lives. And young people need to, to hear that. Uh, can I add one more thing? Please. I don't know yeah, if it'll fit ahead. in, but no, you, guys, please, go ahead. you guys might want to, because this is really odd looking down on us. The medical community has to do with mass casualty exercises. And we had a doctor in the clinic downstairs in the Pentagon that went away for a, a year. and went. He had been there for a long time, and then he went, I don't know, Walter Reed maybe. And a new doctor came in, and he had a mass casualty exercise. And the mass casualty exercise took place in May uh, prior to the September disaster. And his exercise was an airplane hitting the Pentagon. Wow. And they practiced that for the first time. They had a mass casualty in years. And they were able to get all the equipment ordered, stretchers and walkie-talkies and all the thing, medical things that you would need for emergency, medications, everything uh, set um, in that clinic so that when a disaster would come, we would have it all. And it did come. But they had already practiced this. And I just think that, you know, sometimes we don't maybe know everything that's going to happen to us in life, but God does get us prepared for things without us even knowing it. Yeah. So I, I just uh, I, I want to leave that something you wouldn't know. Uh, necessarily, and you do know when the stone of the the cornerstone was laid in uh, uh, in the Pentagon it was also laid on September 11th, 1941. So very interesting to see another September 11th um, in a different uh, decade. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know either yeah. of those facts. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. critical and such a miracle. Plane, wow. It is a miracle. Yeah. Where the plane hit is now a chapel. If you ever get a chance, you can go right over there. You're allowed to go into that part of it. Mm-hmm. And the South Koreans uh, pretty much paid for most of that chapel. But chapel now is where the plane hit and where so many people die. But it's worth going to see that. Uh, Suzanne, thank you. We just really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story and what you experienced and went through that day. And thank you for the service to so many individuals that day and, and beyond in your career. Well, be prepared. You never know when you're going to be called upon to act. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody should be prepared in their life. Oh. And thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Well, stay with us because up next, Lauren and I break down the left's fight against the new pro-life Texas legislation. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite ways to keep up with the policy issues that I care about. 
the Daily Signal's YouTube channel. Nerd alert. <laughs> wow, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you are anything like me and you like researching those nerdy policy issues and you enjoy researching interesting topics on YouTube or simply just being entertained, you're going to love the Daily Signal's YouTube channel. You know, sometimes it's hard to know what information is well-researched and trustworthy. And that is where the Daily Signal comes in. We are constantly posting new videos that are designed to keep you up to date on the news you care about and give you the data and the facts succinctly. The Daily Signal YouTube channel features policy explainer videos, documentaries, entertaining clips from podcast interviews, and so much more. So go ahead and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel today so you can stay informed and never miss out on the news that matters. So unless you live under a rock, you've probably heard about this new law in Texas. It is a piece of pro-life legislation that went into effect last week after the Supreme Court denied an attempt to block the bill. The legislation bans abortion after a child's heartbeat can be detected, which is usually around the six weeks of pregnancy. The bill also makes it illegal to help someone attain an illegal abortion. Now, you have probably heard of similar bills known as heartbeat bills. Uh, but in the past, states that tried to pass those bills, they were all blocked by the court. So Texas is is the first state to pass this kind of legislation and actually have it go into effect. And what makes the Texas law so unique is uh, is that citizens, not state officials, enforce this law. The legislation allows for private citizens to file a lawsuit against someone who performs an abortion in violation of the law or, or who assists someone in attaining an illegal abortion. So this law, it, it's very unique. Uh, and, you know, big level, obviously, we we celebrate a law that protects life. Life is sacred. Um, and to see any state moving in that direction of standing for life is a huge deal and very much so worth celebrating. Yeah, it's hard because the law is complicated and the law really does put the protection of life on the citizen, which I think at the end of the day is a, is a good thing. We should be protecting one another and protecting the human race. So, yes, it's something to celebrate. We need to be pro-life. But at the end of the day, I don't want to win this pro-life fight on a technicality. Mm. I think we need to stand up for life. We need to – I mean Roe v. Wade has just been terrible for our, our society and, and yeah. we're going to get into it. But the left has been moving more and more – left <laughs> on, on this <laughs> issue with, going that direction. With, yep. the, with abortion, you know, being safe, legal and rare in 1973 to now we want to celebrate it. And I mean, God bless Texas for this six week rule, because the baby has a heartbeat like it is a person. It, it's a person from the moment of conception, but that they're standing up and they're trying to be creative. I think this is a good way to be moving in the pro-life movement. And uh, to be frank, we don't get a lot of victories on the side. Yeah. So when you do, you have to take a moment and, and just be happy that there are some babies who are going to get to live because of this law. Absolutely. Well, and I think uh, I, I feel like this law in so many ways, 
it, it acknowledges the science. It, it just makes sense that, okay, by the time a child's heartbeat is detected, that's a life. Now, I, I believe life begins at the moment of conception, uh, but certainly that feels like something right or left. We should, should all be able to agree on that when a child's heart is beating, that that is a life. And, you know, we, we didn't have, when Roe v. Wade passed in 1973, we didn't have ultrasound. We didn't have the science we have today. We didn't know that a heartbeat begins at about six weeks, that a child can start moving around in the womb at about eight weeks, that at nine weeks, that those basic uh, physical features of a human being, they're already there at 10 weeks, that uh, a child has hair and fingernails, can hiccup at 11 weeks, at 12 weeks, a baby can actually feel pain in the womb. We didn't know any of that. Now we do, and our laws need to reflect that knowledge. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, those are all great facts, and I think really important arguments to be made. But at the end of the day, life begins in conception. I mean, it, it was written in the yep. Bible and most religious texts that, that humans have had for centuries and, and millennia, and uh, we shouldn't have to justify, okay, if it has hair today, it's a baby. Like, no, it is a baby from... The second that is created, it has its own individual DNA. You preach, Lauren. Uh, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, and, and so getting into our next point, I think that's why it, it is so frustrating when companies that we use every day, like Uber and Lyft, just go so far left leaning. I got an email this weekend from Lyft, and actually, like three people screenshot the email and sent it to me. <laughs> but it was like because of this law, we're setting up a legal fund for our drivers, which. All right, whatever their private company, uh, I, you can have that conversation and that they can do whatever they want. But then they took it a step further and they pledged a one million dollar donation to Planned Parenthood, and that is just a slap in the face to anyone that's pro life because they're they're taking this law, which is just protecting life and is making a stand, and they're they're then making it political by pushing money to an organization that. That does abortions. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's it really is telling when we see the these big companies like Lyft, Uber, uh, the the dating apps uh, match, which owns Tinder and Bumble. They're also saying we're going to set up a fund uh, to help women attain abortions. It's very telling. And in some ways, I think it shows how disconnected they are from so many Americans. I mean, a, a recent Gallup poll showed that in 2021, uh, that 50% of American men are pro-life and 43% of American women are pro-life. That's not a small percentage. And I feel like these companies, uh, and so often the left, it takes this approach of, oh my gosh, there's you know these radical people in Congress that are pro-life and no one else is pro-life. And that's not true. A, a significant amount of Americans, almost half of Americans, are very open and willing to say, yeah, I'm I'm pro-life. And when you actually then break it down into even further, at what level are you pro-life? Are you just pro-life for, you know, first trimester or after the first trimester or, or whatnot? That expands even further. And I think it's a lesson that our listeners need to take to their college or their friend groups where it seems like every one of their friends is some liberal who carries a Planned Parenthood bag around. It's not true. You you are not alone. And it is a mistake that these companies are making to come down on this side and come down on this side so hard. Well, and Lauren, you sent me a really interesting 
tweet, a sad tweet, uh, from uh, a gentleman who is the president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Tell me about that. Well, he said that you can't screen for Down syndrome before 10 weeks and something like 80 percent of Down syndrome fetuses are abortions. If red states ban abortion, we could see a world where they have five times as many children with Down syndrome and similar numbers for other disabilities. Which, I mean, if this doesn't get you fired up, Mm -hmm. like slap yourself in the face, go get some coffee and I'll read it to you again. Because these children with Down syndrome are they should be alive. The fact that the, he is using this as a negative thing yeah. and that, oh, my gosh, those red states are going to have more happy people. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> that's not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Children with Down syndrome are a gift. And my mind went right back to I remember, gosh, this was probably two years ago. You did a segment, Lauren, with Kelsey Bowler, and uh, there was a beautiful video that you found that was uh, featured all these Down syndrome children and and individuals with Down syndrome talking about how there is they're almost going extinct. There's so few uh, Down syndrome individuals now in America across the world because they are being aborted and they're these beautiful lives and individuals obviously just as worthy and as deserving of life as anyone else uh, and to some reason call them less than just because of a disability that they have is so absolutely wrong and frankly just disgusting. Yeah. And I would challenge all of our listeners to have a conversation with a trusted friend about this because what is the line that we draw where a human life isn't worth living? Mm. Is it is it Down syndrome? Is it other disabilities? I mean, it's just it's so haphazard and it's so kind of this worldly thinking of, oh, that this person won't have a full mental capacity to to have X, Y, and Z thoughts. And like, no, that's not what makes you a happy person. There are a lot of very smart people in this world that don't live happy lives. And children and families with with Down syndrome, they live great lives and and they bring a joy into their family that you can't necessarily put down on a piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. So well said. Well, there are uh, still ongoing lawsuits on this bill. A a lot is still changing and developing. We're watching different companies, individuals react. So we will keep you all in the loop on this legislation as things progress. But we want to take a few minutes to celebrate the start of the school year (laughs) for all of our students going back. We're excited for you. Very excited. You know, I was walking through uh, Target over the weekend. Which is such a dangerous sentence. Oh, that is a dangerous <laughs> sentence. But I walked down the aisle with crayons. And like that still, <laughs> the smell of crayons takes me like right back to first grade and buying school supplies. And I know for like all of our college students listening, you're like, I was not buying crayons for like my philosophy 101 class. But like it's just that that like certain smell of back to school. It, it's crayons for me. Uh, but I, I think there's something really exciting about the start of the school year and getting ready to go back and see friends. That I was probably the biggest deal in college. It was so exciting to go back to campus, see your friends, see your people, reconnect. Such a good feeling. Well, in Virginia, I want to push back on that point about crayons. So I am <laughs> You're like... pushing back on crayons. I am. All right. I, I hear am this, like the, le- like the term hashtag adulting is like my... L- least favorite term right like once once you're 17 18 like you're an adult and just just figure it out like life is hard (laughs) and like adult coloring books i i have friends who it's a it's a distraction for them great like i don't think they're like a big thing that people should be seeking out coloring books as an adult but i will say as someone who is 30 years old 
and in a creative field, but just in general, I think everybody should go buy a pack of crayons or markers. And sometimes when you have an idea, just draw it out. Mm. And I, I th- so that's my little tirade for today. <laughs> Take time to be creative and, and try to figure out your ideas in your head because I have so many times things are just like stuck in the front and mm-hmm. I'll just grab a bunch of paper and markers and I'll draw it out like a crazy woman and it just comes out. So don't be embarrassed by that pack All right. All right. Crayons. Buy those crayons. <laughs> Well, some good advice from Lauren today. But Lauren, was there a piece of advice that helped you in college? Yeah, C's get degrees. Wait, say it again. C's. C's. Get. Get degrees. Okay, got it. I mean, you, (laughs) once you graduate, nobody, unless you're going to go into the law field, the medical field, anywhere where you're you're getting advanced degrees, don't listen to this advice. But if you're just going to go into the workforce, what you do... With your degree and with your time in college is going to count so much more than the actual kind of tests and papers. And I'm not saying that you should slack off and, and don't totally. do not do your work. But if it comes down to taking an internship and letting your grades slip or joining a club or going out and getting real world experience, so many students are so focused on this 4.0 perfect degree mm-hmm. where had I spent more time getting good grades and not as much time doing political activism and – doing student government, I would not be here in D.C. today. Like, And so you just have to find that that balance and, and don't get too stressed out either way. If you don't make president of the club, it'll be fine. Be vice president. Be treasurer. Just show up to every meeting. Or if you yeah. don't get a perfect 4.0 and you get to be even a C in your class, <laughs> like life will be fine. Yeah. No, I think that that really is wisdom. There is more to college. And I think it can be a little bit of like a mental shift because in high school, it is like, I have to get good grades to get into the college. Yeah. But once you're in college, you are there. And yeah, of course you want to pass, but the, you're right. There is so much more to college than just the good grades. It's building the relationships. It's being involved. It's having the internship opportunities. That's one thing that I'm like, I probably should have done more internships when I was in college. Uh, I think for me, and I, I believe I've shared this actually on the podcast before, but one of the best pieces of advice I got in college was to be really intentional in forming relationships mm-hmm. and friendships. And often you meet people and you're like, oh, that person's cool. I would love to get to know them. Um, but just the simple strategy of if you meet someone that you're like, I want to be friends with that person, say, hey, can every Tuesday we get lunch? Like, yeah. just make it a regular thing. And I, I did that with one person we met during orientation. We're best friends to this day. And it like was that laying that foundation yeah. of like, OK, we're just going to get to know each other. And then after a semester, you're like, OK, now we're definitely <laughs> friends. <laughs> But sometimes it's hard. You know, you're on a big campus. There's lots of people. It's like, oh, how do I actually build those relationships and friendships? Yeah. No, I think that's so so important both personally and professionally. You've got to balance. I think so many times people think like, oh, I met this person and they're going to help me in my field. I got to take them for coffee, which is important. And you should be stretching and growing in that way. But I think I, I love that example, Virginia, that it's not always about how can I grow myself professionally, but just grow myself personally. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a cool opportunity to be in college and and have that opportunity to have friends and build relationships. And I do want to say one bonus advice, and this does not just come to college students, but it's anyone who is entering the workforce, but you can also really apply it to college. And it's, it was kind of mind blowing advice when I got it as a 20 year old, never apologize for something that you're not sorry for. (laughs) Because we, as women, we will send emails all the time. Oh, my God, I'm still 
oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to ask you this, but da da da. No, don't be sorry to ask that. <laughs> like stand up for yourself and and don't hesitate to to take initiative or or ask those bold questions. If you're sorry, be sorry. Right. Yeah. If you do something wrong to somebody, or if you are actually bugging somebody, say, "Hey, I'm sorry." But if you're just asking a question to your professor, no, he's getting paid to answer your question. <laughs> don't, don't be sorry to ask for his time. So, I, I just having that mindset helped me figure out how to kind of navigate the professional world and, and really start sticking up for myself and, and advocating for my, it was step one into really becoming my own best advocate. Yeah, no, that's good advice, Lauren. I think it say, it kind of goes to like a foundational thing of like, don't say something you don't mean, like be real, be authentic. And you're right. Like, yeah. If you're not sorry, then don't, don't be sorry. sorry. <laughs> it's okay. And if you are about to write an email and you're going to write, sorry, just just have me in your head being like, don't be sorry. Lauren is yelling yes. at you. Do not be sorry. sorry. Do not be sorry. And I am justifying your decision to not be sorry. All right. Well, stick with us for the crowning of our problematic woman of the week. Hi, I'm Virginia Allen. I want to tell you all about an awesome Heritage Foundation resource called the Index of Economic Freedom. The Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom ranks nearly every nation in the world according to its level of economic freedom. Whether for personal, professional use, or for school research, the index is a wealth of information. You can learn why it's easier to start a business in Switzerland than it is in France, and where America falls on the ranking. So go ahead and visit heritage.org index to explore the newly released 2021 Index of Economic Freedom, which features interactive maps, country rankings, graphs of data, and much, much more. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Suzanne Bucci. We were just so inspired by her story that she did not have to go back in. She It was not her job, and she did, and she stayed there all day, despite not knowing where her husband was, despite her knowing that her husband didn't know where she was, her kids were at school, she just at that moment, went all in for America. And, and I don't know if I, I could run into a burning building. Yeah, no, man. And the fact that she was there for a job interview, like she didn't even know these people, that she was literally risking her life to save and protect and help. And you know, I was doing a little bit of, of research on her, actually. And for over 30 years, she worked as a volunteer nurse for the Red Cross. I mean, she is just someone that has given of herself and given of herself. Uh, and man, those are the people that sometimes I think don't get acknowledged quite enough. Like those are the real heroes in our society. And those are the are the role models and the people that we want to be aspiring to be like. And we talked about with Suzanne lessons that folks who were either really young during 9-11 or, or have no recollection of it at all. The memory should be that there are people like Suzanne Bucci. She was one of, I'm sure, tens of thousands, if not Hundreds of thousands of Americans who stood up and did the right way, stood up and did the right thing that day. And in the face of this terrible evil who wants to ruin our country, said, no, we are a moral good and we are here to do the right thing. It's it's just really inspiring. It is inspiring. And I think it's a great reminder 
of unity and to look at the people around us. Uh, and, you know, Suzanne is someone that was a, a part of that season where we really saw the country come together. Um, and, you know, I, I aspire that maybe one day we can get back to that place as as a nation of, of being more united. And what a great place to end the show today. That's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. You can join us on Tuesday. Remember, we have a new format. So you'll notice today we did more discussion. And uh, on Tuesday, Kelsey Buller is bringing us an exclusive interview. So check that out Tuesday morning. It's going to be fantastic. And then, of course, Lauren and I will be back with you next Thursday for a brand new edition. And if you have not subscribed to our show, be sure do to do that. Do it. Do it. You we won't. Need you it. won't. <laughs> Well, we need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It makes such a big difference and allows us to reach a larger audience. Have a great rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend. And again, we'll see you Tuesday. God bless America. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.